Congress of Neurological Surgeons Journal Club podcast. The article we're discussing today is entitled, A Comparison of the Existing Wellness Programs in Neurosurgery and Institution Champions Perspectives. I'm Rimal Dosani, Chief Resident at LSU Shreveport Department of Neurosurgery. We have two other faculty on the podcast today. I'd like to invite the faculty to go ahead and introduce themselves. Thank you. Um, I'm Renee Reynolds. I'm an assistant professor of neurosurgery and a pediatric neurosurgeon at University at Buffalo. I'm also the program director here for the department. Hi, and again, thanks for having me as well. Uh, I'm Alex Biota, professor of neurosurgery and neuroendovascular surgery, and also the resident program director at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. Thank you. Uh, the lead author for this study is Dr. Uh, Alex Biota. We're honored to have you. Uh, please go ahead and take uh, five minutes to provide a summary of the article for our listeners. Sure, absolutely. So we wanted to get the centers that have implemented and initiated wellness programs. We wanted to share our experiences and contrast and compare the programs to the rest of the uh, readership and the rest of the programs in the country. You know, at MUSC, we were one of the first to implement a wellness program. And, of course, the philosophy and the goals and the motivation behind that program were somewhat unique to the needs and the makeup of our programs. Other departments have since then become their own initiatives, but they also have had not just different motivations, goals, but actually very different uh, programs that they've implemented. So the goal is to get the experience of seven programs that have had um, success with implementing wellness initiatives for the residents and, and faculty, some uh, for one-year duration, some for three-year duration, and really have a, an opportunity to contrast and compare, and in that, doing so allow other programs that are thinking about perhaps starting their own wellness initiative to sort of take elements from one program that might work for their program, take elements from a different program that might also work um, so that they can um, hopefully also succeed in beginning their own program and learn some of the, uh, the growing pains and, and mistakes and some of the elements that work for our experience. Excellent. Um, I had a few questions. Um, number one, I, I think the, the value of this article is um, substantial in the current day in training. This is definitely a hot topic and I think one that's going to draw more attention. And as you already cited, it's a new area for us to uh, look into. So we really rely on other people's experiences as to what's worked and what hasn't to make any progress for the future. One of the things is that all the programs that were involved, um, part of the reasoning for initiating their wellness program was to target these areas of deficiency in residency training and to try to promote and develop these long-term leadership and wellness skills that seem to be lacking as part of the educational uh, process that we use. And these areas as a whole have been identified to be a really important current focus within our specialty and medical training as a whole. Despite that, nearly all the programs that were involved stated that resident buy-in or participation was a big challenge, and that was even when the activities were built into already scheduled work hours and wasn't putting additional onus on them outside of that. Why do you think that discrepancy exists um, in terms of the interest and value, um, seeing that we think it's very important and the residents seem to think it's important, but still their buy-in seems to be a challenge? Sure. That's a great question, and we've thought of we've we've struggled with those same questions. Um, the first the first part of that question or the answer is that there are elements that we believe are important for resident wellness as faculty and leaders of the program that perhaps the residents don't agree with. 
we've actually evolved our program over the years. And now instead of me assuming they want to do a certain activity as a team, um, after hours or providing, like you said, some of your welcome activities during hours, we've actually um, allowed the residents to leave and provide a lot more input. Because it turns out it's been a, a bit of a learning curve for, the, for both of us. Another element is that for both the faculty and the residents, it really is a big change um, in the culture of neurosurgery. I think in particular for neurosurgery is given historically um, the, the, um, the people that are entering neurosurgery. I think it's been a little bit of a tough um, hurdle for a lot of programs to number one admit that there's a problem with wellness, which I do believe there is in neurosurgery. And number two, admit that uh, you know it's okay to do things to take care of yourself. It doesn't make you any less of a strong resident. It doesn't make you any less of a neurosurgeon. In fact, that's, that was part of our program is that teaching our residents lifelong habits of personal health will actually make them not just a stronger resident, but actually a better physician, surgeon, and nursing down the road. Needless to say, also, if you take care of yourself, you'll pay dividends. We spend a lot of time and resources in training neurosurgery residents. So why would we not want them to be healthy and live longer, life, longer lives so they can actually impact more patients and contribute to the field more? And that seems obvious enough for us. I think now, you know, we're a couple of years into this um, area of sort of increasing awareness and acknowledgement, not just in general medicine, but also in neurosurgery. But even several years ago, that was something that was not really discussed or brought up at all. So things that seem to make a lot of sense now, and there's a general acceptance, was really a novel and almost um, something that wasn't really meant to be discussed even several years ago. So I think in our program, you know, we found there was definitely some faculty buy-in, and that um, required a bit of encouragement from the program director and the chairman. You know, we were both 100% um, behind this program. We presented the facts and a little apprehensive, but then when you follow through with the rationale and you get over the initial, I think some say just a lack of visceral negative reaction to residents and wellness from the standpoint. Once you get past that and actually think about what we're doing, okay, we're training these residents not just to to um, perform their surgery, have good judgment, be good physicians, teaching them lifelong learning so they can continue to learn the rest of their life. Um, I'm, it, you, it just sounds a little far away. So in addition, we also teach our residents habits of lifelong learning. Of course, the field will change dramatically over time. And, of course, we all know that the education doesn't end with, with residency training. And also some of the faculty have also developed their own habits of exercising or eating well. So clearly the faculty know that it's important. So why would we not teach our residents or encourage them to have the same habits, develop the same uh, lifelong habits, which really begin in residency? Of course, it's a challenge. Residents are busy, no question. They work very hard, very long hours. But the fact is, as I remind my residents, when you're new attending, starting a family, starting an academic career, new practice, you're actually going to be just as busy, just in a different way. So there's really no good good time to start, so you might as well start earlier uh, rather than later. So when you follow that rationale, I think all of our faculty very much uh, got behind it, and that was important. But um, going back to the question about the resident buy-in, there also had to be a cultural uh, change and paradigm shift in the resident behavior. You know, so old habits die hard, and some of the residents were afraid of being seen as perhaps um, less devoted to the field if they, in addition to care of themselves, 
And again, it's our job as the leaders and their mentors to remind them that um, it's actually a good habit. And we're not asking them to be any less devoted to neurosurgery. In a way, as I remind them, we're asking them to do more. So all the um, all the expectations and requirements that we always had as neurosurgery residents, in addition, taking care of yourself for all those reasons that I mentioned. It's actually it's an additional responsibility. So I would say it's not making residency any easier. Some people think wellness equates to easier, more coddled neurosurgery residents. And that's a little bit of a straw man argument. What I would propose is the wellness program actually is an additional requirement, um, more than we expect of the residents. But that the cultural change uh, does have to happen, and some of the residents do have a hard time managing their time and perhaps their energy levels. So when they do have downtime, um, or even the time that we build in, number one, clinical responsibilities are always in the way. With neurosurgeries, we know there's never a downtime that's protected. So that always um, happens. So you have to just assume that not all the residents will be able to participate and just be happy with having as many residents participate as you can. And number two, sometimes when there's that time, uh, we have to be mindful the resident may just be exhausted and they may just need some downtime and not uh, be as interested in doing the activity that we've set out and organized for them. So I think all those factors uh, make the resident buy-in and resident participation a challenge. Yeah, I agree. And I think one interesting point you brought up was about uh, our view of wellness versus theirs. I know at our own program, I tried to institute some team building and social events and you know, I distributed a list of things I thought would be interesting for everybody to do, and lo and behold, everyone came back with a separate line written underneath, and their thought of what an activity or wellness um, team-building event would be was much different than what I would think it would be. So I think forcing them to do activities, even if it's built in, that don't really equate to what they find to be valuable can certainly be uh, a rate-limiting step to the whole process. So um, I agree. You know, you had mentioned faculty participation, which obviously, um, you know, referring to that paradigm shift within the faculty as well is really important. How important do you think faculty participation in the actual initiatives is? For instance, you know, we cite that removal from the workplace and the environment can be very beneficial and an important feature of this wellness program. Do you think faculty participating is a deterrent from that, or do you think it's beneficial to have them there and to sort of increase the camaraderie of the whole department together? Sure, sure. Great question. So I think, <clears throat> so faculty participation, I think, is very important in a couple of different ways. Uh, number one, leading by example. Um, in the beginning of our residency wellness program, we had weekly exercise meetings with, a, with specific trainers that we hired just to train the neurosurgery residents, and we had about three or four faculty members. So I made sure in that first year or two that I was at each of the events chairman was there, it was very important that we showed him that we really meant, we were really behind this and we were taking this seriously. Of course, <clears throat> when faculty um, also show up at these events, in my experience, it's, it's increased uh, residency attendance because there's somebody and they're holding everybody accountable. So that increasing attendance, also leading by example is important. Of course, the different events will have different um, settings, like you mentioned, outside of work or in the workplace. But I do think part of the one of the elements, one of the indirect benefits of the of the wellness is that there's a little bit of a, a breakdown of the traditional barriers between residents and faculty. And of course, the faculty are not only senior in experience and in rank, and we're the mentors, 
So there's always going to be a um, that hierarchy, and that should be there, and there should always be a, a certain respect, and that's of course expected. But breaking down some of those barriers, I think, um, and making it less formal, I think, really opens up the opportunity for more in-depth mentorship and feedback. You know, the days of you know when when residents um, wanted to meet with the program director, I think they were. You know, years ago, you'd have to set up a time with an administrative assistant, show up at the office at the time, and it was, I think, a little bit of a serious and very formal. Now, when you've been exercising with program director side by side and helping each other, I think you can open up a much more open dialogue. I think you'd be much more open about mentorship or concerns about your education or career plans. So um, I think it definitely opens up the... Um, camaraderie like you mentioned, but also just making the faculty more accessible. What's been really successful in our program is there's a there was a, a um, fun little side branch from our initial wellness that I never anticipated, but it was really pretty fun. One of our older faculty members, a functional neurosurgeon, he plays a lot of squash. Um, I never really had good partners. So when this all opened up, he said, well, I'm too old to do what you guys are doing, but I want to play squash. So every Wednesday night, he and two or three of our faculty members and two or three of our residents have a regularly um, allotted time for squash, 7 p.m. to 8, 8.30 p.m. And they all play. It gets competitive, so it's a lot of fun. And they also play on Saturday afternoons. And I play on occasion just uh, always lose, of course, if I'm not good <laughs> part of it. But there, if you have a chief resident, junior resident, who's playing squash with a faculty member, and you'll be sitting outside taking a breather, waiting for the next turn while the other people are playing. I think that opens up conversations that you're not going to have outside, honestly, of a setting like that. It breaks down everything. You're both exhausted, sweating, and you're sitting there relaxed. I think it opens up mentorship opportunities, frankly, that I don't think would really be open in any other, any other form. I agree, and that probably translates over even into the educational uh, aspect where if you're more comfortable with somebody, you're more open to asking them questions about the case you're doing or a patient that you've seen. Uh, so I agree, it kind of transcends along all aspects of how we affiliate and interact with our residents. Um, I do have one tough question. So each, well, I think is tough at least from my end. Um, each of these initiatives has a seemingly high cost associated with it. So I know there were some cost breakdowns in the article, but I suspect that the reported cost is actually underrepresented. And I say that because four of the five programs reported that part of their wellness program included the softball tournament, which we participate in as well. And the reported annual cost for their wellness program was less than just the entrance fee alone into that tournament. So knowing that these are expensive endeavors, but certainly important endeavors, you know, who do you feel should be financially responsible for these programs? Does it fall at the individual attending level? Should the graduate medical education office of each of these programs be lending funds towards this? Is it the program itself? Is it industry? You know, how do you see um, it coming together from the financial side? Yes, absolutely. And we've been working on this challenge. So a little bit of history. When we first started, <clears throat> Uh, because it was so new, you know, four years ago, we obtained educational grants. Um, and my premise was that you know, it was hard to get it through initially because people didn't couldn't make that link that you know, getting exercise equipment, getting uh, in the hospital a little gym for the residents, getting team workouts. So all of our uh, residents get a team uniform. Everybody wears the same color. Every year we get different colors. Um, and we have your last name on the back. 
some people have some funny nicknames on the back, so that's funny. <laughs> but it's nice, you know, even something like a team uniform, talk about solidarity, getting people together. It, I mean, wearing the same stripes makes a big difference. So we pay for the uniforms, we have the, the team workouts, and we have outside activities. The most, the most expensive part is the outside activities. Like we do a summer wellness program, beach volleyball, for food, et cetera. And as part of that, we do a Christmas um, Christmas event, you know, all the departments I think around the country are cutting back expenses in everybody's mind. So, um, you know, several years ago, there was no dedicated resident holiday parties. We had department parties, et cetera. But I always feel like the residents deserved a little bit of, you know, there was one time a year, graduation, the graduating chief, and that's for him. And there's no other time when it's for the residents other than this Christmas party we did. So obviously those are the expenses. So you're right that expenses do add up pretty rapidly. So we had these educational grants to get things kicked off. And again, it was hard to make the link. I think now the link is a little bit uh, stronger and more well-established, but that the wellness and camaraderie was really benefiting the education. Now I think you know, it was more radical just a few years ago. Um, but more recently, I made the argument, number one, <clears throat> it should be the GME and or the hospital. You know, now because of the, um, the awareness of wellness, the importance of wellness, not just the physician morale and physical well-being, but for uh, combating burnout, depression, improved patient outcomes, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's a requirement, of course, in the ACGME. In a way, it's not fun to manage. So I do believe the GME should get behind it in the ideal world and just fund it. Of course, that'll probably be a pretty low, low amount of money. I think departments individually will want to supplement the bigger departments, smaller departments. So they probably want to supplement it. I think the GME stepping up and having a minimum um, that they will fund with, with all the awareness and, and the, um, the spotlight that on it, that's on it would be a minimum. And then I I've encouraged our hospital administrators um, and some bigger hospitals have already done this with employee wellness and corporate um, wellness and, and education. If we do a wellness, and we've had data showing improvements in wellness, that really, if you're in a teaching hospital that's self-funded, this should really be something that just funds itself. If we show that we're implementing it, there's benefits, not just to the resident physicians, faculty physicians, but to patient outcomes. This should be something as a hospital at a much larger scale should be very much invested in, in funding because um, that affects their own bottom line, especially if you're self-insured large you know, healthcare system. Agreed. Well, thank you very much for your time. I'm going to let Rimmel ask a few questions, but I really appreciate your attention to this topic in the article, and hopefully you'll have more programs uh, with buy-in and, and changing their mentality and developing energy towards this as well. Great. Thanks so much for the questions. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Spiota, for your uh, comments. Uh, I'd like to ask a, a couple of questions. Uh, you know, uh, one of the chairs uh, at uh, USF uh, in uh, Tampa, University of South Florida, Dr. Van Leveren, gives a great talk as a visiting professor uh, in which he discusses uh, hiring an independent observer who spends time with residents and observes re resident relations, residents' perceptions of their training, and other observations that provide a quote-unquote pulse for the wellness status of a neurosurgical program. You know, this observer then you know, submits a report highlighting recommendations to the program leadership for improving overall morale uh, of the program. Now, do you have any experience uh, with an individual like this who may come from time to time to offer an independent, unbiased observations about the overall morale of your program? 
That is a great idea, and, and the answer is that I do not have experience, but I would love to have that experience. You know, we are um, ultimately what the residents and the faculty are in trying to deliver care to the patients and, and trying to train and educate is really we're a very elite, intense group of individuals. That's basically what we are. Um, so communication, teamwork, relying on each other, all things, by the way, like we've alluded to, I think the wellness and doing activities all um, strengthen and support that. But we are a an elite, high high intense um, group of group of individuals who work as a team. So one of the areas that I'm very interested in is the sports psychology, a high performance team. So we have worked together, but but I've not invited this person, but perhaps I should to come to our our institution and observe. We have worked and collaborated and, and done some um, peer-reviewed publications with a sports psychologist, a very interesting person who actually was an uh, elite athlete herself and then got her PhD in uh, sports psychology from Stanford and now is a, um, <clears throat> she is a preparation coach for Olympic athletes. But the amazing thing, think of us neurosurgeons, we don't have, when you're attending, you know, perhaps your senior partners, we really don't really have coaches. Michael Jordan even had a coach. But there's, you know, these elite Olympic athletes have coaches to prime their performance. But the amazing thing is she's not, a, as a coach for these elite athletes, she does not know anything about their actual sport. Secondly, or mechanically speaking, she works on the mental preparation, just the actual, so not the physics, not the, the dynamics of, of performing that uh, sport, but just the overall general positive mental preparation for that event. So we've, uh, we've used their um, expertise and tried to implement it for uh, approaching you know, difficult surgical cases, difficult stressful experiences on call, and really trying to use some of the sports psychology um, <coughs> fundamentals and philosophy that are working, you know, that are implemented very effectively in other areas. And again, typically physicians and surgeons, we just, you know, we've, I think, neglected that. I think there's a lot of room to incorporate some of those techniques. So sports psychology is, I think, very, very useful. The other area that we've implemented is um, two years ago we did a department-wide, and this included both faculty and residents, a personality assessment. So we used the Myers-Briggs. There's limitations to that, but widely, um, widely uh, distributed and, and known uh, personality instrument. So everybody took this personality assessment, and everybody shared it with everybody else, and I did a grand rounds where we went over, we had a lot of fun with it, went over the common areas as you would expect. And there were two area, two personalities that are relatively, um, actually very uncommon in the general population that were 80, that represented 80% of our faculty and residents. So clearly there's, there's some personalities that are drawn to the field. And we went over using <coughs> the personality assessment. What are our tendencies under certain cir circumstances? You know, all these elements of the personality are double-edged sword, where they're adaptive in one situation, very much so, but then equally maladaptive in a different situation. We went through, we broke down common areas of conflict. For example, going to assess a shunt for possible malfunctioning in one of the pediatric, you know, we have a, one of the pediatric neurosurgery colleagues. We went through the common personality types in some of the nursing specialties compared to the common ones in neurosurgery residency. We can explain the conflict some of these um, interpersonal relations very 
you know, openly and readily by looking at the personality classes. So we went through that to really understand ourselves better. And um, we learned a lot about leadership, how you lead, how you're led, because of course as a resident you have to learn how to lead and also be led. And likewise as a faculty, as a junior faculty and senior faculty. And we learned about each other's weaknesses and strengths and how we deal with stress. And we used it as a big team building exercise and really everybody really had a good time and enjoyed that. And we've also, um, you know, wrote up our experiences and contributed that to the, um, to the peer reviewed uh, literature as well. So I think sports psychology, personality assessments, understanding what makes us tick, what makes us perform better. I'm all for doing that because again, at the end of the day, it's a team work approach to patients and communication, getting everybody to perform at the highest level. That means for somebody, you may have to approach them a little differently. Be stern with somebody, be more soft-spoken, more encouraging with another person. You have to understand how you how to get the most out of your out of your team players, especially if they're, if they're you know, a diverse group of people. So all of that fascinates me, but to be honest, I just don't have beyond the interest and the reading I've done. I do, I do not have the expertise. So back to your question: If we could bring somebody in that had expertise in sports psychology, personalities, and all those elements, and they could observe for uh, months, even. Um, I would actually very much welcome that and would love to see that happen. I think it would really help our program. Thank you for that. Um, uh, my second question is, uh, you know, sometimes I've noticed that a common reason for lack of resident morale and uh, rate of high rate of resident attrition in neurosurgery may be poor camaraderie among the resident core itself. You know, there may be groups of residents, juniors, uh, may not feel uh, uh, to have a good relationship with their senior uh, residents. And because of the hierarchy uh, in the resident program, the juniors may sometimes feel abused uh, by their seniors. Uh, you know, these types of conflicts may not be reported to the program leadership, you know, because of an unwritten code of ethics that uh, residents keep issues amongst themselves and not, quote, unquote, sell out their counterparts, you know, to the program uh, leadership. Uh, do you have any thoughts on, you know, how resident camaraderie uh, may be improved? And the follow-up question, you know, how do we bring awareness of resident issues uh, to the level of the program leadership so that there aren't these uh, sort of oppressive conflicts between the different groups of residents within the program? Yeah, great question. <coughs> and I think, um, you know, number one is I think we, we've seen benefits to the wellness uh, with regards to camaraderie and teamwork, but I will say we've we still probably have the same um, exchanges and conflicts that probably every program has because of the, the universal uh, themes and challenges. But I've given some talks on the wellness, and I always show this one slide of um, you know after hours after sign out, we had a group of four residents who were playing um, squash, you know, just down the street, two blocks from the hospital, on campus at the wellness center. And we had a, I think we actually had two chief residents, a mid-level PGY3, and an intern were playing squash. And they're sitting there, of course, they're taking a selfie, right, generation. But they're taking the selfie, they're in, they're playing squash, and they're all satisfied. And we posted it to our webpage. And I showed to say, no, where else are you going to have two chief residents, a PGY3, an intern, actually socializing after sign out before going home? Um, think of the breakdown, like you mentioned, those barriers. When I was a junior resident, certainly intern, the chiefs were not to be uh, disturbed or spoken to. You know, um, certainly calling after hours, you know, for something to, to be perceived as a sign of weakness. So think about 
those barriers, we know those barriers in the strict hierarchy. It's a double-edged sword, sir. Of course, you need the hierarchy, um, obviously, but a strict hierarchical system, we know, leads to patient error. People don't speak up if they see something. People are afraid to ask a question. They're afraid to, to show they don't know something. So I think it absolutely breaks down, like I mentioned, between the, the resident and faculty barriers. It does break down barriers in between the residents, so I think it definitely does help. Has it solved all the problems? No. You know, it's a very intense field, as we all know. We spend so much time with each other, residents on residents. Inevitably, conflicts and, and clashes do occur, but I think it does help. And when we've had uh, clashes, I found we have, we've been able to get our residents together and, and, and um, be able to work it out. And I think a lot of that is because of that relationship. And again, I think that relationship when you have a senior level resident, junior level resident, literally exercising together. I think getting that that um, <clears throat> that release and that sweating and doing it, doing it together and a lot of the events and exercises that we do are teamwork based. For example, somebody's holding a plank position while somebody's doing a, you know, a sprint. So you're cheering everybody on, you're trying to get something done together. I think that teamwork translates to other areas, including finding out, communicating, seeing conflicts, helping each other out when somebody's busy in the OR working together. So I think it all translates outside of the, um, the individual exercise or the individual team um, team event that you're participating in. Well, thank you so much. I, you know, I'd like to uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Spiro, for uh, joining the podcast today and for sharing your thoughts on the article and your insights on uh, wellness. And I'd like to share thanks with uh, uh, Dr. Reynolds from uh, Buffalo as well. Thank you so much for uh, uh, joining the uh, uh, podcast today uh, in answering uh, our questions. Uh, this concludes the, the CNS uh, Journal podcast uh, on the wellness uh, article. Thank you, everyone, for joining in. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it.